Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. As Mark's building the case for Christ, he takes this opportunity early on to introduce us to the team. Jesus chooses a team with which he's going to minister. He chooses a team who are going to turn out to be world changers. The title for this morning is 12 Unexpected World Changers. And we meet them in Mark chapter 3. Follow along as I read verses 13 through 19. Mark three thirteen. And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, so that they would be with him, and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Sons of Thunder, is the translation, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There's a universal principle for hiring people. Many of you are in positions where you've hired, and you're in positions where you've vetted and looked at resumes and job applications. And the simple principle is this. You're always looking for the best possible candidate. You're looking the best for the best possible candidates. Who, who rises to the surface? This is true for employment. It's also true in sports. Just think of the NFL draft we just saw last week. I know all of you were glued to your television screens watching that. Teams take turns choosing who will help them best. And in any given draft round, they choose the best player they can get at the position they want to fill. Think of the prestigious colleges and universities and military academies. They sift through thousands of applicants to find the best of the best to study with them, the best of the best who will end up representing them. And think of the process of becoming an army ranger or a navy seal. Only the smartest, only the brightest, only the quickest, only the strongest, only the one with, ones with radical endurance are chosen to be part of this fighting force. But then there's the other side as well. Not only choosing someone, but applying for a position. I think most all of us have filled out applications or produced uh, vitae's or resumes and Resumes, applications, references, cover letters, interviews. And I've never heard anyone, I guess there may be someone who really didn't want the job, who shows up to an interview and, and decides to just be terrible. You want to present yourself as the best you possibly can to impress the one who will be hiring you. Well, here in Mark, we meet the most elite group of influencers the world has ever known. But 
Their assembly, the way they were chosen, didn't involve resumes, didn't involve applications. Jesus chooses 12 men to be world changers, one of whom he knew would become his own conspirator to murder, which indeed would be a part of changing the world, by the way. And here is the vetting process we find in chapter three of Mark. It's counterintuitive. It's unlike anything the world has seen since or at the time. And if you look at the credentials, if you look at the qualifications of these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles, these 12 men, you would not be impressed. None had any religious training. They had common educations. Some were socially despised. Others were outcasts. And one was a political radical considered to be a terrorist. But their choice was pure spiritual genius on the part of God through his son, the Lord Jesus. Because he didn't go to the place to choose the men that would have been expected. I mean, think about this. They're looking for the Messiah. They're longing for the coming one who's going to overthrow Rome and give strength and power and restoration to Jerusalem and to the nation of Israel. They're looking for the Messiah. Where do you think they would look, not only for the Messiah, but for the best men to accompany him? Probably Jerusalem, probably the Sanhedrin, probably the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the scribes or the theologians. Not Jesus. He chooses men, all of whom were from Galilee, except Judas, who was from Judea, who were up living in a rural area, seven of whom were fishermen, living around a lake. And he's done so in a similar fashion with every believer since. He doesn't look at spiritual resumes ever and say, you deserve to be chosen, so I will choose you. I love the words of J.C. Ryle. He's one of my historical heroes. He says, this is so sweet. The names of a few Jewish fishermen are known and beloved by millions all over the globe, while the names of many kings and rich men are lost and forgotten. We know these men. We've seen these men. Your children learn about these men downstairs in the children's ministry. We're going to look at their choosing and their character briefly this morning. In order to grab this, I want us to look at two ranks of the first gospel force. This is important to understand this. These are two ranks, like there's a general and a private or a sergeant and a corporal. These are two ranks of the first gospel force. He shows Jesus on his own level and then shows the men who are under him serving his purposes. Let's look at the first rank of the first gospel force, this original team that Jesus would choose to impact the world with the life-saving truth that God saves sinners. And that's the sovereign choosing Savior. We start with Jesus, the sovereign choosing Savior. Verse 13. 
And he went up the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. Stop right there. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 tells us something about this day. It tells us something about the night before that Mark doesn't include. There's a significant spiritual lesson here. The night before Jesus calls these men up mountain, probably Mount Arbel outside of, of a Galilee, the night before that, he goes up there by himself, and Luke tells us he prayed all night. Now think about that. The Son of God, God himself, goes to pray not for a few minutes, not before a service, not before a meal, not before bedtime. He prays all night, hours. There's so many levels of, of application there. The Son of God, if he, if he needed to pray about this important decision, how much do you and I need to pray about any decision? He committed himself to the Father before he asked the men to commit themselves to him. Since he goes up on the mountain, typically that was to get away from the crowds, probably our bell right outside of the, uh, the uh, just up from the lake on the northeastern, northwestern shore. Pretty serious hike, I've done it. Done it up and down, and it's way easier coming down. Now, before we look into this list and Jesus choosing, Jesus says he, he himself, the Greek is intensive, this was a personal decision. He himself chose the ones he wanted, and they came to him. And, verse 14, he appointed, he chose, he ordained 12. Have you ever asked yourself, why 12? 10 would have done the job. 14 would have been two better than 12. 20 would have been a, a, a force almost double. Why 12 men? Jesus could have chosen any number of men that he wanted, but he chose 12 men. Now, the number 12 has serious, historically redemptive themes and underpinnings and purpose. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many? 12. These 12 men represent, in a sense, a new form of the 12 tribes of Israel. You say, how do you, how do you get that? I mean, it's just a coincidence that there's 12, isn't there? Well, they echo looking back the 12 tribes of Israel and they look forward in final creation to the prophetic future. Listen to Luke chapter 22, verse 28. Speaking to the men, he says, You are those who have stood by me in trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And you will sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. If that's not clear enough, in the book of Revelation, which speaks of the prophetic future, Revelation 21, verse 12, verses 12 to 14, this is describing the new Jerusalem. It had a great and a high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Remember that. So it looks back to get the 12 tribes of Israel, but it keeps going. There were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three gates on the south and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 
You see how it looks back and looks forward? I think it's also interesting. We won't take the time to look at this now, but it's worthy of a complete study. And that's the choosing of Matthias. You know the story. Judas is going to defect. Judas is going to commit suicide. And instead of just saying, well, there's 11 of us now. We're good enough. We've got a, we've got a cadre. We've got a cohort. In Acts chapter 1, verses 15 to 26, there's this whole scenario where Peter instructs the, the folks, the 120 who are gathered together. He says, we must resupply the 12. We have to have someone to take Judas's place. Look now at the ministry they were called to. Verse 14. He appointed the 12 so that they would be with him that, they could, that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. If you look ahead, in fact, just mark this in your mind. Turn over to Mark chapter 6. We will certainly get to this in a few studies. He pulls them up the mountain and chooses them in chapter 3. They didn't just go out to preach immediately, though. He had to train them and instruct them. He had to fill their minds with the message that they would be taking out. What was that message? Look at what it says here in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. He summoned the 12, began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He instructed them that they should have take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt. Absolute dependence on God. But to wear sandals, and he added, do not put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. Now we find the message that he's going to train them to go preach. Here it is. And they went out and proclaimed or preached that men should Repent. That should be a blinking light in your mind. Who do we meet in Mark chapter 1 who had the same message of repentance? His cousin, John the Baptist. And they were casting out many demons just as he said they would. They were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So, back at North Galilee, he pulls these 12 men up. And the text indicates that there were a lot of people. He chose 12 out of them. Remember, there, there had been a large crowd following him around. He had been watching and noticing. He knew, according to John 2, what was in all men. The first thing he says is that they would be with him. Boy, if you underline phrases in your Bible, that is such a powerful little phrase. That they would be with him. No one is trained in ministry. No one deeply abides in Christ. No one loves and worships the Savior who doesn't deliberately spend time with him. This was not a class. This was a life-on-life discipleship. That he could send them out to preach, to preach repentance. Now, this is interesting because the disciples' message changed The message now was the same as John. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's standing right here. The king is here. Repent, turn from your sins. Turn to Christ. Pursue righteousness. Don't be hypocritical and say, I belong to God and live like you don't. That was the message. Live like you belong to God if you say you belong to God. 
That message would substantially transform and bloom after the resurrection. Because then it was the life and the death, the cross, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you were to believe and put your trust and faith in those elements, those facts of the gospel, you can be saved and have everlasting life because Jesus rose from the dead. Right now, this is the early training on repentance, the same message that he preached in Mark 1 and that John the Baptist preached in Mark 1. By the way, that was a great testing ground. Can you imagine the intimidation of a Galilean fisherman going out and telling religious leaders who would gather to hear them speak, repent, knowing that that same message caused John the Baptist his head. He also gave them authority that was borrowed authority from him. The main issue was not the casting out of demons. The main issue is this is what Jesus had been doing and now that they did it, the upstream connection point was they must have the same authority that Jesus has. It was his authority. Here's the point. Mark is making the point in the context that by selecting these 12 men, these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles, ones who would be sent out, God was making clear that he is in complete control of sovereignly choosing the ones whom he would have follow and lead for him. Read the full discourse in John chapter 6. Only those he calls respond in faith. Jesus chooses these 12 men so that they could be with him. They could extend his mission by their proxy, by going out for him. Their ministry began up around the lake in Galilee. But ultimately, it would go to the, the known world to Great Britain and to India. What do you do with this? I mean, we obviously appreciate and understand what Jesus did in calling the disciples, but what about you and me? Well, like the apostles, I think we ought to be in communion with Christ and stay close to him. It's a great lesson there. He chose them to be with him. Like the apostles, they went out to preach. We ought to be faithful witnesses. I think we bear that same um, designation, that same charge, that same responsibility to go out and proclaim and witness to and tell people of the good news of the, the gospel that God saves through his son. Like the apostles, we ought to do good in any way we can. We may not be able to heal the sick. We don't have the gift of healing, but we can ease sorrow we can be comforters, we can be counselors, we can be peacemakers, helpers, a friend to the needy. There was a heart behind what they did. And like the apostles, we may not cast out demons, but we certainly should stand up against the wiles or the schemes of the devil, as Ephesians 6 tells us. Standing in full armor that God has given us to live righteous lives and to be trustworthy, to represent him, and trustworthy to stand against unrighteousness. The focus here is not so much on the men, but it's on the, the Savior. Look again at these verses before we move on. 
And he went up on the mountain and he summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. And he appointed the 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach, to have authority to cast out demons. You think Mark's making a point here? It's about him. It's about the sovereign Lord, the choosing Savior, the one who's in charge of this whole process. No applications, no resumes, no tryouts. And rest assured, no one in Jerusalem would have pointed to these men to say they ought to be the ones to usher in the messianic kingdom of God. It's incredible. Can we identify with these men? Well, in order to understand that, let's go now to the second rank of the first gospel force, the general, the sovereign choosing Lord. And now we come to, secondly, the 12 chosen sinners. The 12 chosen sinners. Now, I want to talk to you about method here for a minute. This was, I've been looking at this passage for months, wondering what are we going to do when we get here? I was tempted to have 12 sermons on each of these men. Now, Peter would have taken multiple sermons and... James the Lesser would have taken just a minute or two because there's not much said about him. I was very tempted to just do uh, what our friend John MacArthur has done in his excellent book, I highly recommend, 12 Ordinary Men, where he just looks at all of the depth and background of these men. We're gonna look at those backgrounds as we encounter them upcoming in the book of Mark. I think right now we're gonna do exactly what Mark intends for us to do is to take these men as a group and say, who are they? In a short, abbreviated, staccato, very fast-paced attempt. Now, when you survey these 12 disciples, you're quickly reminded of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. You know this passage well, right? Talking about us. Consider your calling, brother, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Said another way, he chose the Galileans to shame shame the leaders in Jerusalem. Chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. The despised he has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. That's speaking of our calling, and that was certainly true of these first 12 appointees. Verse 16, and he appointed the 12. In other words, he officially ordained them as a part of his leadership team. Now, again, we're not going to do a deep dive on all these men, but we are going to move fast. And I've tried to, on the PowerPoint, give you a little phrase that you can attach to these men so you can know who they are and have a reference point as we move through our study in Mark. And again, let me, again, highly recommend John MacArthur's 12 Ordinary Men for a full biographical understanding and sketch of these men. Let's look at how they appear briefly here in Mark 3. Number one is Simon, known as Peter. The impulsive, bold, and outspoken leader. If you want in parentheses from that, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. Mark says, Simon, and then he gives us the the parenthetical description, to whom he gave the name Peter. One of the things that's interesting in looking at Jesus with his men is Jesus was a nicknamer. Well, see, he gives several people nicknames as he chooses them and he changes their names. 
Now, in each list of the 12 apostles, Simon Peter is always named first, indicates that he was the leader, the outspoken leader for the group. When you have Jesus encountering the disciples, he is almost always the first to speak, except one notable time. In John chapter 13, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. And then he asks a question to the disciples, and Thomas speaks up. And Peter, for obvious reasons, is probably not thinking about being the leader at that point. He was one of the first three in Jesus' core group of disciples, Peter, James, and John. He would be the first to recognize Jesus as the Messiah in Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then immediately, after that great proclamation, tried to talk Jesus out of the cross. So as soon as you have this bright light of, wow, Peter, he says, you know this whole dying thing? May it never be. To which Jesus responds back to Peter, get behind me, Peter. No, get behind me. He saw straight through to what was going on in the demonic conspiracy. The night of Jesus' trials before being crucified, Peter would disown Jesus three times just as Jesus prophesied. But then at the end of John, he gives him three times to tell him he loves him and three times for Jesus to say, shepherd my sheep, be a pastor, be a shepherd, care for my flock. He was the first Christian preacher. You ever thought about that? Peter was the first Christian preacher. Happened on the day of Pentecost. He preached, founded, as it were, the Jerusalem church, he wrote two letters, First and Second Peter, and it's interesting when you read those to remember that he is the uneducated fisherman whose insight into theology should encourage us all that you don't have to have a PhD in theology to understand the deep theological truths of God. Peter is such an interesting study of contrast. At one moment we're saying, wow, what a follower, what a disciple, and at other times we say, how could you miss it so badly? And doesn't that sound like the voice you hear when you look into the mirror? Sometimes we have great moments of following, great moments of clarity, great moments of obedience. And other times, if we don't deny him with our lips, we certainly have denied him with our silence or with our sin. Next, he lists James, and we call this one James the Greater. There are three Jameses in the New Testament. Two here, neither of them are the James that wrote the book of James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. We find out later that his family didn't believe in him. You'll see that in the next passage, actually, until after the resurrection. But this is James. This is John's brother. He's ambitious and fiery, a son of thunder, and not the author of the book of James. Just said here to be the son of Zebedee. He's in that core group. He's one of the, the, the first followers and the early leaders. Brother of John who wrote the book of John. He asked with John, remember, he asked Jesus as he was going to Jerusalem to be crucified. Hey, and by the way, not only did he ask, he sent his mom to ask too. Can um, when you become like the Messiah and you're sitting and ruling in Jerusalem, can I like sit on one side and my brother sit on the other side? Can we just be the vice presidents of the kingdom? 
At one point, he, he wanted to call down fire from heaven and destroy a Samaritan village. He was also be the first apostle to be martyred. James and John were brothers, the sons of Zebedee. They would have their lives completely turned inside out by Jesus. By the way, Peter's nickname indicated Jesus wanted him to become the rock, right? Petros, the rock. This was gracious, and I'm going to give you a nickname based on who I want you to become, not, not James and John. Their nickname indicated who they already were, the sons of thunder, Boanerges in the Greek. It's fiery guys, pistols. Look third at John, his brother. Let's kind of group them together. John is James's brother, ambitious and fiery. He's a son of thunder. Later, though, John will become a loving example. He will become the disciple who Jesus loves. Jesus nicknames them the sons of thunder. He, along with his brother, remember it, this sweet man in the wrote the book of John, who wrote so much in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John about love is the one telling Jesus, I want to be above everybody else and your vice president in the, in the Messianic kingdom. When you mix, the, when you combine rather and collate the, the stories, you find out that not only did they ask this, but they had their mom come and tell Jesus too. That, you know, the boys really ought to be your, your VPs. Incredible. He accepted uh, Christ right away, no pushback. And he, along with his brother, wanted that Samaritan village to get hammered by, by the wrath of God. If you study James and John, you can just see how God, through Christ, transforms not only a life, but a personality. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and it was to John that Jesus revealed himself in the revelation of the things to come, writing the book of Revelation. Number four, Andrew. This is Peter's fisherman brother who is constantly eager to bring others to Jesus. We look at Andrew's life. He was one of the first to accept John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus. He's the one who told Peter about Jesus. He brought Peter to Jesus. He and Philip told Jesus that the Greeks wanted to see him. He was kind of always the guy they knew to go to if they wanted to find Jesus. And the few times that Andrew is highlighted in the Gospels, he's often seen escorting people to come and meet with, talk to, introduce themselves to the Savior. A boy with five loaves and two fish found him, and he brought them to Jesus, brought him to Jesus. He was always the one bouncing people to the Lord. What a great example. To get Andrew was to say, was to get, do, do you want to meet Jesus? That was who he was. Number five, Philip. Inquisitive and Doubtful. He told Nathanael about Jesus and wondered how Jesus could feed 5,000 
We'll get to that in just a, a few weeks, a few studies. He, he, he looks and says, I don't know if you can pull this off, Jesus. But also very curious as to if he could. He and Andrew told Jesus that the Greeks wanted to see him. He was another go-to like Andrew was. Philip was also in the upper room. He's the one who said to the Lord, this is a really interesting theological dialogue that Jesus has with him. He said in John 14, 8, Lord, show us the Father and it would be enough for us. He got all the way to the night before Jesus' execution, still not getting that Jesus was one with the Father. In response, Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you've not come to know me? And he uses his name, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Philip was thick-headed, a little slow to come to understand the Lord. That was typical of all the disciples in a sense and certainly typical of most of us. Number six, Bartholomew. Slow to believe, but honest and straightforward. Initially, he rejected Jesus because Jesus was, get this, from Nazareth. Remember what he said in John? Can anything good come out of that part of Israel? That, that's scum. The, the idea that, that the Lord would bring his Messiah from the slums of Nazareth was too much for him. But he's the one who acknowledged him as the son of God and the king of Israel when they met. Jesus called him a true Israelite in John 1, 47, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, when you get our friend Bartholomew, you also get what you see and see what you get. There's no guile. By the way, he's called Nathaniel in the Gospel of John. All the other three Gospels call him Bartholomew, called Nathaniel in John. Number seven, Matthew, we've already looked much at Levi. Matthew is a tax collector, a despised outcast who gave up all for Jesus, gave his business up on the spot, abandoned his corrupt and financially profitable way of life to follow Jesus. Remember, the, we just studied the party that he threw for Jesus with notorious friends. Instantly, ostracized, not only because of who he was and what he had done, but also the fact that he was warming up to this new messianic, messianic figure that the religious leaders were so against. And to him, think about this, God gave the privilege of writing the book of Matthew, one of the four gospels. Number eight, Thomas. Now please get this, he's both courageous and doubtful. Please, please, we're gonna spend eternity and we'll have with Thomas and be able to talk with Thomas. Don't, don't let the first conversation be, yeah, I just knew you were always the doubter. He was a doubting man, and you know what? You and I probably would have been too. You know what happened? Jesus appears in a room and reveals himself to the disciples who are waiting. Thomas isn't there. And they tell Thomas he came. He said, not unless I see the wounds well, I believe, not unless I can touch the wounds. And when Jesus sees him, he invites him to do that. And lest we remember him only by doubting, do you remember what Thomas fell on his face and said? One of the greatest 
affirmations of the deity of Christ in all the pages of Scripture. He falls down before him and says, my Lord and my God. He was also nicknamed by Jesus, the twin, Didymus. He was courageous, sometimes pessimistic. Uh, There's an interesting scene we'll get to later as they're going up to Jerusalem that final week. He kind of figures out what's going on and he says, let's all go to Jerusalem to die with Jesus. And then he runs when the Lord is arrested. Number nine, James the Lesser. Now we call James the Lesser and James, James the Greater for the reason that we're not, we don't know much about this one, this James. Son of Alphaeus, little is known except his martyrdom. He's faithful to the end. The son of Alphaeus, according to Mark 15, 40, he was also called James the Less. That's where we get that from. He had a mother named Mary. He followed Jesus and was the first to be killed to give his life for the Lord. Number 10, Thaddeus. Thaddeus is called the good Judas. Sometimes he's called Judas. Now, there are two Judases. There are two Simons as well and two Jameses. You gotta, that's why I think there's lots of nicknaming going on. Jesus is keeping them separate. He's theologically curious. He asked Jesus why he would reveal himself to his followers and not to the world. What we're going to see is he starts unpacking, uh, Jesus starts unpacking truth in parables. He just pulls Jesus aside and says, now, why are you doing this so that we understand, but they don't? Which solicits an incredible uh, theological discussion about the use of parables and why Jesus was actually, we'll get there, hiding the truth to some Number 11, Simon the Zealot, a fierce patriot. Most of the zealots were actually considered by Rome as terrorists. The word zealot means he was anti-Rome and a revolutionary. Now, when you pull back a second and kind of increase the focus and look at these men together and think of their interaction with one another, think about this. He would serve with Levi, with Matthew. A former tax collector, a traitor to the Jews, a sellout to Rome. Matthew was the exact kind of person that the zealots murdered, ambushed. Yet they were going to serve together with the Lord. Incredible diversity in this group linked by the good news of Jesus. And number 12, Judas. When Judas, every time Judas is mentioned in the New Testament, it's in reference to his betrayal, even his, the mere mention of his name here, the one who betrayed him. He's always mentioned last in every single list of the disciples The defection of Judas may have been a surprise to the other 11, but it was not a surprise to Jesus. In John chapter 6, verse 70, 
Jesus told his disciples, did I myself not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? Now, this is really important. Jesus, when he chose Judas, didn't choose someone he wanted to invest in who went foul and south and turned on him. He knew from the very moment he pulled him up that mountain exactly who Judas was and exactly what Judas would do. Acts chapter 1, verses 15 and 26 tell us that it was part of the preordained plan of God that Judas would betray the Son of Man. It also tells us there that he hung himself and was such a failure at hanging himself, the text tells us that he fell on a rock after he hanged himself and his intestines exploded out of his abdomen. Pretty graphic. And there seems to be in the mind of Luke an intentional, deliberate, derisive way of speaking about the betrayer. You know, you look at all this, and it's the obvious point is discipleship is not what we can do and what we can bring to Christ, but what he can make of us, of these men. One of the most significant historical studies, though it's extra biblical except for James, is to note how these men died. Peter was executed as a martyr in Rome, according to tradition, crucified upside down at his own request because he felt unworthy to be executed like his savior. James the Greater was martyred early in church history, being beheaded by Herod Agrippa I, mid-40s, Acts chapter 12. Andrew, according to tradition, died shortly after introducing the wife of a provincial governor to the gospel of Jesus. She returns to recant her faith. Her, anger, her angry husband, though, had Andrew crucified on an X-shaped cross, and he reportedly hung there for two days before he suffered to death. And everyone who passed by, he would preach the gospel to them. Thomas, the strong tradition from church history that indicates that he took the gospel to India where he was martyred by stabbing with a spear. John died of an old age in exile alone on the Isle of Patmos. James the Lesser was stoned and clubbed to death in Jerusalem. Matthew, according to tradition, was killed with an axe with his head split open. Philip reportedly was martyred by being severely whipped and flogged in prison, then crucified after that torture. Bartholomew, tradition tells us, was tortured and crucified in India as well. Thaddeus was crucified at Edessa. Simon the Zealot, believed to have been crucified in what is today known as the British Isles. And Judas, who I would put in the category of a world changer, because he played the role of the predicted betrayer that would be a part of the conspiracy to put Jesus on a cross, which was the predetermined plan of God all along. And here's what I, I want to take from this. All of these men spent three plus years with Jesus. If anyone on the planet ever knew that Jesus was false, 
or Jesus was true, it would have been these men. Their faith and belief in Jesus was so strong and so true and so genuine that they died for it. They didn't defect from it. None of these men began as preachers. They were common men and fishermen, tax collectors, radical patriots. None of them went to seminary. None of them held popular public position in any sense, no esteem. But 11 of these men would be the first evangelists to go out to the whole reaches of the known world and participate in God's redemptive plan on the cross being explained and preached. Joe Aldrich, in a very old book that I remember reading as a young man, in his book, Lifestyle Evangelism, he says there's a legend which recounts the return. This is fictional, just to tell you that. There's a legend which recounts the return of Jesus to glory after his time on the earth. Even in heaven, Jesus bore the marks of his, of his, eternal, of his earthly rather, pilgrimage with his cruel cross and shameful death. The angel told the angel Gabriel approached Jesus and said, Master, you must have suffered terribly for men down there. I did, Jesus said, and continued Gabriel. Do they know all about how you love them and what you did for them? Oh, no, Jesus said, not yet. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel was perplexed. Then what have you done to let everyone know about your love for them? Jesus said, I've asked Peter, James, John, and a few more friends to tell other people about me. Those who are told will then in turn tell others also, and my story will be spread to the farthest reaches of the globe. Ultimately, all of mankind will have heard about my life and what I've done. Gabriel frowned and looked rather skeptical, and he knew well what poor stuff men were made of. Yes, he said, but what if Peter... And James and John grow weary. What if the people who come after them forget? Haven't you made other plans? Jesus answered, I have no other plans. I'm counting on them. Then Aldrich says, 20 centuries later, he still has no other plan. He's still counting on you and me. High on God's to-do list is the evangelism of the world and his early disciples adopted the priorities and devoted themselves to reaching their world. Christ counted on them and they delivered. And he says, how have we done as well? I know that's fictional, but I think it, it's interesting to draw out the point that these men were, were God's plan. And so are we. What do we take away? Some questions that maybe you can talk about in your care group or with your family, some things to think about. These are really statements. First of all, Christ is a sovereign who calls sinners to himself. I look at this and I see that of all these people, he chose men who you and I would have never chose. He's sovereign. He calls sinners to himself. I know the Catholic Church has called them saints, the Bible says if you're a Christian, you are all saints. These were ordinary men who were able to do extraordinary things because of an extraordinary Savior. 
Also, I look at Peter and, and, and these other men. Christians falter at times, but when we return to Jesus, he's so refreshing. He grants forgiveness. He renews strength. He gave Peter another chance after he denied him three times. He's so patient. And his interaction with these men just raises our understanding of the patience of God in flesh in ways that no other scenarios would have. Just a few more. Coming to Christ means taking on the responsibility of a witness to him and the gospel. When these men came to Jesus, there was the expectation that they would represent him and his message. They were called to go out and preach. You and I are called to go out and proclaim as well. When you study these men in particular, you'll, you'll find one thing rises to the surface. Jesus changes the people who follow him. Jesus changes the people who follow him. Which is interesting because after 36 or so months of following him, Judas was never changed. What a terrifying reality Judas stands in light of redemptive history that it's possible to be near and close and listen and see and preach. Judas was one of the ones in Mark 6 who went out preaching as well. And the whole time he was loving money, pilfering off money for himself, in the end, denied Jesus for money. But Jesus changed the other 11. He is in the extreme spiritual business of changing people. Going to Judas one more time. Lastly, it's not enough to be familiar with Jesus' teachings. Jesus' true followers love and obey him. And you see the contrast between the 11 and the 1 here. You know, it just brings us to the point of going back to say what, what Aaron sang for us and with us at the beginning. I have decided to follow Jesus. These men all decided to follow Jesus, but that wasn't their choice first. John 6 says, he chose them before they knew him. I love the word Christian. But I really like the phrase that we find here, follower of Jesus. And if you come to a point where Jesus is the one, not a one, the one you follow for all the instruction in your life, all the accountability in your life, all the authority in your life because his extreme sacrifice, his ultimate priority of dying for the sins of those who would believe. Do, do you believe? And if you believe, do you follow him? Or is he an afterthought that comes up on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights in a care group? These men gave up everything and followed him. That's the essence of true Christianity, that nothing is prioritized above a relationship with Jesus who's alive from the dead after being crucified in the place of those who would believe. Do you, will you follow Jesus?